This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Well, today we have one of the most dubious characters in the whole world of ufology, or the UFO <laughs> world, I should say. Uh, Greg Bishop has written extensively on UFOs and the paranormal. He's got many, many published books, some of them gigantic, uh, and all of them fascinating. We're going to be playing today in the garden of a book called It Defies Language, which is I want to use because it uh, is a good uh, uh, sort of, it's a lot of short essays of Greg's thoughts about this going back many years. And he does think about it very, very well, or he wouldn't be here. Do I agree with him? Of course not. <laughs> so here we go. Anyway, his radio, he is, uh, you can find him on radiomysterioso.com. It's a long running interview show. I've probably been on it. I'm not sure, but um, I think I would, twice. What? I think twice. Twice. Least. Oh, God help me. Well, I'm getting, I'm, I've been on so many things, I don't remember anything. Oh, anymore. no, you can possibly. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Uh, I think I did. Uh, we did keep a count uh, in 2022, and it was something like 312 broadcasts. In other words, more than one, at, just about one a day. Yeah. And and, uh, and so, I'm anyway. Bell shows, and I find you on about every sixth or eighth one. <laughs> I know. It's bizarre. I was on some big thing somewhere on some unknown big network recently. I don't know what it was. But the result was that people were suddenly staring at me in the street. And, you know, they talk about 15 minutes of fame, but this happens to me whenever people uh, on s some huge show run a clip of me. And I have not 15 minutes of fame, but about three hours of fame. It's very <laughs> creepy. <laughs> so, anyway, anyway um, Tim Banal, a uh, host of Banal of America, said uh, Greg is a next level thinker who sees the UFO phenomenon and its accompanying ephemera from a unique perspective that is sorely needed in this field of study, which translates into, he doesn't buy a lot of, excuse me, while I embarrass myself by having a, an allergy attack. Uh, he does not buy into a lot of things that uh, are considered sort of accepted memes in the field. And this makes it most interesting. I want to start with a discussion of some possible alternatives and we're going to get into incidentally a great thing greg has done recently which is the ufo tarot um, he very wisely chose me to be the emperor in it um uh, so no you're uh you chose it and it's the fool actually i chose it yeah oh, you, you i asked what kidding. you wanted to be and you said only uh, hey, a fool would choose the fool <laughs> but it, but you but you saw the card and you said oh that's perfect and I was so relieved because the fool is somebody that just walks into the abyss without thinking about what the consequences are which is exactly what well, you did I, I'm shocked shocked I have to tell you how could I ever I must my mind I must have been under mind control and never say the visitors don't have a sense of humor anyway mm -hmm. it's a fabulous production hold up hold it up will you greg if you have it uh uh I'm to find well no, no just the whole deck i mean you don't have to you don't have to massage me by holding up the fool himself well this uh, is part of the deck right now anyway is it available yet we are just about to send it out the artist miguel romero is going to come up to los angeles in about three weeks and we're going to go through all the signings and uh, um, uh, numbering and all that of, of the card decks and the books and things like that. And those will go out to the Kickstarter supporters. Um, to the Kickstarter supporters. And then, the, then uh, I believe I am a Kickstarter supporter. Yes, you are. Yeah. Well, and you're yeah. in the card. So I'm, I'm really happy that you, you know, supported the effort because um, to me, um, you and, and Jacques and Jenny Randall's, uh, are, I believe the only living people, besides um, Juan Perez uh, from Argentina, are the only living people on the cards. So we had to get permission that's, from everybody. That's terribly scary. 
<laughs> well, the reason we did this is because if you start putting too many living people on the cards, you start to, you know, you don't have to ask their permission, but I, I would like to ask their permission because I don't want them to get upset or insulted or anything like that. Because all we're doing is honoring these people. But this uh, is the UFO community. They're going to get yes. upset and insulted anyway. Yeah, no matter what. So, right, exactly. Um, like I'm, I'm very upset and insulted uh, <laughs> about being called, being chosen as the fool, even though I did it myself. I'm mad at me. <laughs> yeah, and here's uh, the here's the book. Oh, good. It looks great. Um, so wonderful. Oh boy. Yeah, that's that's great. It's such a. It, it, by the way, folks, this is really a fabulous deal. We're joking about it a lot, but it's one of the most wonderful Perfect. things that's been done. Oh, there he is, looking. They see the white moth and the everything. It's so pretty. There's uh, Co the cat in the cabin in the background. It's uh -huh. so cool. I have to tell you, folks, it's very cool. And there I am walking off into the abyss through which I fall yet to this day. Okay. <laughs> so uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful production, and we're going to have a lot of fun with it. Uh, and it's, it's something unusual in the UFO world, something with a sense of humor about itself. Um, now, of course, I'm targeted as a person with absolutely no sense of humor. Uh, Philip Klass, who himself had a very limited sense of humor, con contended that I was a temporal lobe epileptic and therefore had no sense of humor. But I, in my <laughs> life, met temporal lobe epileptic epileptics because I'm very interested in that. Of course, I would be. Mm -hmm. uh, and they all had good senses of humor. Yes. And so anyway, so that proves nothing. All right, let's start again, or we, or we may have already started. I'm not sure. Where do UFOs come from? You have a brief essay about Michael Talbot, the beloved friend who died so young, uh, a book, The Holographic Universe, and talk about a seminal book. It is a, it is a wonderful book that explains... Or, or doesn't explain anything, that's the wrong word, illustrates why things that seem like what they are may be something other than that. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good way of putting it. And that the universe is connected at a level that we only indirectly perceive and can only see uh, kind of in little wrinkles and corners where odd things seem to happen. How does this relate to the UFO phenomenon in your mind? What I think is, and I don't exactly remember what I wrote in that uh, essay because there's so many things in there, um, but in my mind, it's since we can only perceive what evolutionarily and physiologically and psychologically that we can perceive that the UFO and what it represents and how it interacts with people is always going to be at one remove or two or three from what the thing in itself is, um, whatever the UFO is. And I think that um, we put our own uh, ideas, metaphors, um, cultural cueing, all these things uh, onto the UFO, and it it becomes what we what we perceive it to be, and not exactly what it is. Now, you know what it is is something that affects people deeply, and uh, and it's it's funny when people say I say this, people say, "Well, you think that people are lying, or that people are hoaxing, or that people have you know perceiving wrong, or whatever." I, I no, I don't think those things. What I think is that we, you know, we're a slave to our our perceptions and 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 our neurology and all those things, and so that we have to sort of perceive what it is through our metaphors rather than what it is. And the thing the thing is, I think I wrote in the book is, I don't think we have any access to that. We only can look look at it through our language and our metaphors and our ideas and things like that. So we have to yeah. deal with it on that level. And I think I learned part of that from you from reading your books, Whitley. Well, it's going to be even more apparent in my new book, Them, because it's the central theme of it. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you wrote, 
language traps us in a conceptual web of illusions, at least as far as this symbolic realm is concerned. We may imagine that our reality could be a sort of shadow or epiphenomenon of this holographic dimension looked at through a mental web of expectation, sensory input, and our illusory flow through time. Now, could you unpack that for us a little bit? <laughs> <laughs> I wrote that? Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah um, you did. Well, you know, as I, I think I was heading towards it in the explanation I was giving, but um, because we are we deal with things in language, uh, we can only conceptualize things that words tell us to conceptualize. So when you try to describe something that's indescribable, you have to put your get your mind around it in some way, and all you have is language. And language creates ideas, and it creates images, and it creates stories. And that's how we see things. I don't think the UFO um, phenomenon comes from a place of, of, uh, of logic or stories or anything like that. Um, I think I wrote somewhere else in the book that it, I think it just goes along on its merry way doing what it's going to do, like the wind and the waves or animals or whatever. And you know, we the crop circles are a perfect example of that. The crop mm -hmm. circles are a perfect example of that. Whatever makes them is just doing what it does. It doesn't, it's not, it's not trying to, 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 uh, clue us into secret codes at all. Yeah. I, it's just, it is there. It is what it is, kind of. Yeah. And so it exists in this, you know, uh, to us, a vacuum of meaning. So we must assign a meaning to it so that we can deal with it, look at it, examine it. And if you're having some sort of uh, traumatic experience, which many UFO experiences are, um, your mind is also dealing with trauma. And when your mind deals with trauma, it starts filling in blanks or putting things there that make that let you give you a uh, ability to handle it without um, you know being too disturbed or going too crazy or whatever you want to call it. It's all based on you know um, language, survival, and uh, uh, you know, evolution and all these things that uh, people don't take into account. I think I say somewhere in the book is um, that the instrument for perceiving UFOs is us. That's the most accurate instrument we have. And it is a completely inaccurate instrument. And it also is very individualistic. So yes. there's no way to really say what, what these things are. We can only say how it affects people. And one thing I've noticed, Whitley, um, that I keep bringing up is when I started doing lectures at UFO conferences, and I'm sure this happened to you very early on, People would come up to me and start telling me what they what happened to them. They didn't want an explanation. They didn't want um, they didn't want me to make them feel good about it or whatever. They just wanted to say something to somebody uninterrupted, so that they could get that story out and and process it for themselves yeah, without exactly. ridicule or whatever. Exactly. And and that's that's very important. Um, but and you the say, other thing, you say something here very interesting. You say they wanted to s tell you what had happened to them, but that's not what they were doing. What they were doing was telling you, using language, to describe something that their perceptual system assembled in that way. Mm -hmm. And uh, the most of the study I've done has taken me to the point where I can show you why it is that this, that the perceptual system has having so much trouble with this. One thing that is clear from the variety of explanations and stories that are out there is that we're not necessarily, each individual is not necessarily assembling the, the, a perception of what happened in the same way as the next person. Right. Uh, and the reason is that the brain, when you're born, the brain uh, begins to, to make associations. You're a clean slate at first, but by the time you're even one year old, 
you've got a lot of associations and your brain is beginning to use them in order to understand the, the perceptions that are coming in. When the optic nerve, for example, receives information, the brain is doing much more work behind the mm -hmm. scenes yep. looking for similarities and connections than it is uh, uh, processing the information that's coming in. And when the information that's coming in doesn't fit anything that's already in there, you're in trouble immediately. And it will start pulling things together arbitrarily to try to make sense of it. And yep. this is why one person has one perception of a UFO experience and another an entirely different one, even side by side sometimes of the same experiences, which right. you, I point out in them. But still, the bottom line is this. I got raped by something. How mm -hmm. do you reconcile that, all that? Uh, the only thing I can say is that it, it, you know, basically what you just said, the only reconciliation is that something has happened. It has affected somebody deeply and it's looks like it's coming from the same source. We don't know for sure because we don't have access to that source, but, um, it does not mean, and I, 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 I take this, uh, quote from my friend, Shannon Taggart, who you may have had on your show. She I have said, not. Tell, okay. tell us a little bit about him. She has a book Earth. called Seance, yes. What she did was she went to Lilydale in upstate New York to do some photography work, and she had a reading done, her sister did. And the medium there said something about their family that they most people in the family didn't know. It was kind of a secret, and it wasn't a, wasn't a very nice secret and for, about a dead relative. And that really kind of changed her mind about what was going on. She said, oh, there must be something here. And what she did was she started, she's a photographer. She's a professional photographer. She started attending seances um, and uh, mediums doing uh, channeling and things like that and took photos. And things started showing up in the photos that weren't there. Um, lights, shapes, things like that. And she said, I'm a photographer. I know that stuff isn't supposed to be there. And I know it's not camera problems because I know what those look like. So she um, did a book called Seance. And it's, you know, it, it's basically about the history of spiritualism and her experience with it. I think Dan Aykroyd wrote the, the foreword to it because his family are spiritualists. But what she said to me once, and she was on my show, and I use as a quote, is she said, I take this seriously, but not literally. And I think that applies really well to the UFO thing. And that's kind of how I feel about it. I take it absolutely seriously, but I'm agnostic about what the source is. I know it's not us. I know it's some other thing that's that's aware, self-aware. But not having the experience you have had, I don't know what form that takes. And I think it takes many forms depending upon the individual. You know, I'm not so sure it's not us. I'm not so sure that this is the only form of I human actually being. said that, you know, in the in the in some of my essays too, I think. But go ahead. I think you did too, yeah. I mean it's it's easy to say that it's not us because they sure as hell don't look like us at all. But there's something very profoundly us about them, I think. And I wouldn't be surprised if the human species has more than one form. I mean, like Anne and the white moth. Is that a sign of, you know, a moth starts as a as a little caterpillar becomes a chrysalis and then transforms into a moth, same as a butterfly. Mm -hmm. And uh, is is that is she 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 thought very much about this. She thought uh, that that we may be in more than one form and also therefore may have more than one re relationship to reality. And it 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 may turn out that we are the sort of larval form or the caterpillar form uh, creeping around, eating everything in sight. And, and, uh, and then uh, we, we presumably, uh, at, when we die, we kind of transform into something else. I'll never forget what Lori Barnes and secretary was told when, in her first encounter in, back in the 50s. 
when she was she was horrified by what was happening and because this was like 1953 when things like this just did not happen yeah and um uh she had these little dark blue figures in her bedroom when she was pregnant she was terrified and they asked her why she was so frightened and she said uh because you're so ugly and and it, the first, the one that was talking said, "My dear, one day you will look just like us." Mm -hmm. Now she's yeah, passed on, and I wonder if she does. Perhaps you know, it, it's so fun to speculate about this stuff. Yeah. And, in and, fact, you probably talked to my friend Josh Cutchin about this very thing when you. I did indeed. Yeah, I did talk to Josh about it. Uh, we have to always, folks, be. You know, we are we we are we are playing in the in the field of the mind. And it's a field of flowers. Indeed it is. But it's also full of little bees that bite you and caterpillars that eat everything and all kinds of other stuff. Yeah, it's um, clean. Oh, I one another essay in the book somewhere I said, maybe we're dealing with something that holds up a mirror when we get too close. Wow. Okay, that's a great moment for the first break. We're <laughs> going to take a break right now. And chew on that, free dreamlanders. We'll be right back. Them, Mitch Horowitz calls it in the preface, among the most important interpretations of visitor phenomena since Jacques Vallée's passport to Magonia in 1969. Dr. Vallée says in his foreword, the book cites fact after fact to build the case for in-depth realignment of public policy and public need. Diana Walsh Pasulka, author of American Cosmic says, leads the way and it's best that we listen because the stakes have never been higher. Earth Tech International President Hal Putoff says, them is exceedingly valuable. Leslie Kane, author of UFOs, generals, pilots, and government officials go on the record says, groundbreaking in the truest sense of the word. Bigelow Aerospace VP Colm Kelleher says, searing and masterful. Them, a new vision and a new way of looking at close encounter. You have never read anything like them before. It is the beginning of a new way of looking at our own future. Where are we going? Where have we come from? What secrets have been buried? What secrets have been lost? What is the truth about the close encounter experience? You have never heard any of this before. Them. It's a sir. Oh. Like this. It's a UFO. Like Where'd it go? Disappeared. Yeah, yeah, no, no, Them. Get it today. Available on Amazon.com. Okay, we're back. We're talking to Greg Bishop. He is the driving force, or one of the driving forces behind the UFO Tarot, soon to be released. Um, he is also the author of many, many books. Uh, I think the it's about 53 pounds of books at this point. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and some great ones. You know, the one on George Adamski is remarkable. Uh, I've read a lot of Greg's work, and um, but we're we're sort of we're sort of working with a book this week called it defies language essays on ufos and other weirdness and yet it's not autobiographical uh, or at least not not entirely um he is the uh other weirdness uh we're all the other weirdness anyway it, i'm going to go back to this sort of um what if aliens are not coming from other star systems from the inner Earth or either, even other dimensions, whatever that means? What if they exist because of us? The other, for that is all I can call it, is there. 
but it has no reason to enter our world except the fact that we are here incarnate in a four-dimensional world with our ideas about reality. To them, there is no yesterday or tomorrow. There is only being right now. That's a very profound statement. And it, it touches the heart and the mind in some special ways. Um, he agrees happily, thinking to himself, he likes my work. Well, well I listen to this, Whitley, and I feel bit. like I'm, I'm, I'm repeating things that I've been inspired by by reading your things over so many years, because everything I write is, a, you know, and I'm sure you do too, is an influence from other people. We've of just course. Kind of restated it. And um, to me, saying that was uh, directly a result of um, your experiences and how you describe them, you know, as well as some other people, but, um, you know, chiefly from your stuff. Because there is no, you know, you you can't have a you you can't have a, 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 a it has to be a dichotomy. We have to be interacting with something. It doesn't exist on its own. We don't exist on our own. But the thing is, whatever this is coming from, I think, and you have elaborated this very well. I think needs us to come to some kind of meaning about something outside themselves, kind of like that idea that God created uh, the universe to find out what being not God would be like. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I think the scales down very well to the, uh, to the, um, the visitor uh, issue. You know, um, in one of the letters in them, the, the first half of the book is letters, which I'm sure my listeners mostly know by now. Uh, one of the letters has a great letter about from a guy who was um, a young soldier and stationed abroad. And he moved into an off-base apartment. And he was delighted to find that the girl who lived downstairs apparently was sweet on him. <laughs> they became great friends. And they played backgammon together and they had a wonderful time together. Then they eventually they made love once. And then she became rather cool toward him. She didn't seem to want to see him much anymore. And she was break, obviously breaking off the relationship. And he thought, well, I guess I'm no good. Uh, which, of course, is the first thing that every man thinks when that happens. I didn't do a good job. <laughs> and um, she invited him down to see her. She lived in the apartment below him. And he thought, well, I'm going down to be told goodbye. Okay, I'm I'm here. I'm I, I can live. I'm a grown-up. I'm I'm gonna take this. Mm -hmm. So he goes down there and she says, I want to show you something. And she's sitting right across from him, and she slowly by degrees turns into a gray alien the long mm -hmm. face and the big black eyes and the thin nose, the whole thing. And, and he's sitting there, goggle-eyed, of course, and she changes back into herself and says that he will never see her again. The next day, the apartment is empty. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Don't you wonder what the heck that means? And, you know, I, what if it happened right now? What if it happened to you? It almost happened to me once. Mm -hmm. I almost, I had a friend who was a massage therapist and he was very advanced and he was working with doctors, in other words, and he was helping people who were very nervous calm down. Uh, and there are people who can't handle drugs, can't handle uh, uh uh, uh, sedatives and sedatives yeah. and things. Mm -hmm. And so he was massaging this lady and a massage room had a big mirror in it. And she was very fragile and had a very damaged heart. And he looks up from the massage tape from his work and sees his reflection in the mirror. And he's not human. He's a gray alien. He's changed into the other form. Hmm. And hmm. Uh, he thinks, oh my God. If she sees this, it'll kill her. And so he continues the massage 
as best he can. And he looks away and he's praying that this changes and that this is not real, but it feels real. And then he looks up again and he's himself again. So he said something like, I concluded the session. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the theme of this show is basically where is all this coming from and what are we? And I think you you come across as a sort of a straight arrow type of guy uh, with uh, rather a skeptical approach and uh, to all of this. But I think you know more than you think you do. And I'm trying to get it out of you is what I'm trying to do. Oh, I, you know, Whitley, I've got this, this weird thing about me. And I think I got it from Robert Anton Wilson, who I, I read and he was, became a good friend. But it is this idea that I am, I, uh, the only thing I'm fanatical about is my agnosticism about things that I, that I do not have personal uh, uh, um, experience with or cannot prove objectively. And the UFO thing, I mean, you can prove it objectively, but you can't really prove what it is objectively. And that's kind of the sticking point of this whole thing. And that fascinates me. And that make it keeps me interested. And plus, I've met wonderful people through this who have great minds and uh, wonderful ways of looking at things. And so I'm not, I guess it's skepticism in the classical sense where I, I um, don't believe anything. But except that I think there is, I am certain that there is something that is not us that interacts with us occasionally and maybe more than occasionally. I'm, so, I'm almost 100% certain of that. And all my other interest flows from that. Now, when you say something other than us, let's talk about that a little bit. Mm -hmm. the otherness of it where why do you perceive that otherness as an otherness because is, yeah, go yeah ahead. because people are reacting to something something that is real and something that is psychologically and psychically real which essentially is the same thing because all we have are our perceptions and beliefs and all that and if that's the case and it's that consistent and it is so unlike us in a lot of ways, then all I can think is that it's a it's another consciousness that is self-aware and is curious about us um, in a completely different way than we are curious about it. Our, our curiosity about it is like a, a child picking up a toy, I think, but their curiosity about it is like an is more like um like an artist choosing colors or or a medium to work with to to try and make a, make sense of what's going on with them and their relationship to us and to anything else that they come across. Um, so yeah, it it all has to do with uh, with relationships and and looking at 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 whatever that other is. I mean, you said that thing about looking in the mirror. I'm not, when I was listening to the story, the first thing you think is, well, the guy must be an alien um, in some way. But the other thing I was thinking is maybe this is a glimpse of some other reality or a glimpse of a possibility or a glimpse of a metaphor rather than an, an actual, you know, I don't know, if, you know, maybe he wasn't an actual alien person in the mirror, but he was getting a glimpse at some relationship he has or some connection he has to that otherness. Um, you know, if I was him, I would probably think exactly what he thought. How could you get away from it? It's happening yeah. to you. You have to take it quite literally. Um, but, you know, not having that. Oh, let me turn off my uh, phone. Um, well, that'll keep ringing. Anyway. Um, so until I have this experience for myself, I must listen to other people and what their impressions of this are. And try to understand on that level, because I think if and when it happens to me, that um, that realm of possibility or that uh, superposition of states, if you want to use a quantum uh, physics term, will be collapsed. And I will have a certain idea about it because I will have personal experience with it. So until then, I try to keep my um, 
keep my objectivity about it and listen to everybody and see what their experiences are and how that how it's being um, uh, uh, processed for them. One thing I wanted to say earlier about having people come up and talk to me, I also noticed early on that experiencers would talk to each other and they would have completely different uh, uh, um, reports of what had happened to them. But they both knew they were talking about the same thing. Exactly. Exactly. That, I've had that experience many times. Yeah, that fascinated me. And it still does. And it makes me even more interested to find out what's happening to people and what that source might be. Because we're, you know, it's like Plato's cave. I think we're just looking at the shadows and we're going to have to get the information that we get about it from these shadows. And we're also going to have to accept this is not going to be a single explanation. I don't think it's going to be individual for the person. That's part of the reason for the tarot, uh, ufology tarot deck is to let people find out in some randomized way what is important to them about the phenomenon in a very quick and non-verbal and non-language based way. It's, it's dealing with images. And if that's the case, maybe whatever your personal connection to the subject is can come out a little bit quicker and you can, um, you know, move towards the thing that, that, you know, either makes sense to you or you're going to do good work in or the experience you want or whatever it is. Um, and that's another big, big thing with me now. I think <clears throat> art communicates in a way that language cannot, which is why I'm trying to push um, a, a view of, uh, of a UFO study based in a visual language rather than in a, um, a, a you know, a word language. Right. Well, folks, uh, we're going to take another little break here. And when we get back, we're going to go deep into a very unusual cave with Greg. It should be an interesting journey. We'll be right back. Mitch Horowitz calls it in the preface among the most important interpretations of visitor phenomena since Jacques Vallée's passport to Magonia in 1969. Dr. Vallée says in his foreword, the book cites fact after fact to build the case for in-depth realignment of public policy and public need. Diana Walsh Pasulka, author of American Cosmic says, leads the way and it's best that we listen because the stakes have never been higher. EarthTech International President Hal Putoff says, them is exceedingly valuable. Leslie Kane, author of UFOs, generals, pilots, and government officials go on the record, says, groundbreaking in the truest sense of the word. Bigelow Aerospace VP Colm Kelleher says, searing and masterful. Them. A new vision and a new way of looking at close encounter. You have never read anything like them before. It is the beginning of a new way of looking at our own future. Where is the unknown country? Is it out there in the stars? Or is it also somewhere else? Is it in us, in you? Unknown country, join us today. Go to unknowncountry.com right now and join us Join the questions, join the search, join the adventure, unknowncountry.com, there's no place like it in the world. We're 
back. Uh, we're talking to Greg Bishop uh, about a many, many things, roughly circling around one of his many books called it's, It Defies Language. It defies everything, in fact. And you brought up briefly, uh, when we were talking a few minutes ago, Plato's Cave. And I think that the whole journey you asked earlier in the show about, you know, we sort of touched on where does it start? And I think the whole journey starts there with that realization of where we are. And it's a particularly interesting one because I believe that Plato's cave was inspired by his trip to Eleusis, that it is a reflection of the Eleusinian mysteries, mm -hmm. which is a which must have been incredibly powerful and sophisticated uh, because they used hallucinogens and imagery and uh, an understanding of the difference between where we are and where we think we are. It was really very profound. Tell us a little bit about Plato's cave. Just tell us the basic story and then we can, we can move on from there. Well, the, it's not even a story, but, but, you know, the idea of Plato's cave is that um, somebody, you know, the observer is chained to a, a, a wall in a cave. And there is something going on outside the cave. That means outside your realm of experience or, or your senses or your, you know, um, perception. But what you see on the wall of the cave opposite where you are are shadows moving back and forth of what's going on outside that cave but that's all you have access to. You're looking at shadows of some other reality or a higher reality um, and that you have to form your ideas about that, what, what that ultimate reality is by just looking at moving shadows, not the things that cast the shadows. And I think this is a very good analogy for the, you know, for, for reality and life in general, but especially the UFO uh, issue. Especially the UFO issue, exactly, because we can't, we can't pin it down, and I, I'm, and yet at the same time, Greg, I have to tell you that the idea that this is, in the end, a simple reality that it is aliens from another planet never completely leaves my mind. Oh, me? Because either. I know, I know. Of course, it doesn't, because I've just seen so much that made it look so much like that. And, and yet at the same time, I think to myself, what would we do if we went to another planet? And the answer is we would exploit them. I mean, a planet that like this one, which no one had ever left and no one ever had any ability to travel the stars or anything like that. They would, had always just been there and had their built up their own ideas about the world. And I think to myself, what would we do? And then I think, well, you know, we've actually already done this many times. The Spaniards did it when they went to Mesoamerica. The English, the French, the Dutch, they did it all over the world during the colonial era. Mm -hmm. And they beat these people up something awful. 90% of the population of Mexico was dead within 10 years of the arrival of the Spanish, of Cortez. Mm -hmm. Boy, I mean, that's, and the rest were enslaved. That's intense. Yeah. And they had utter contempt for all of the indigenous beliefs. And, in, in, you know, in the in British arrive in India and they're dealing with some of the most sophisticated multi-thousand-year-old civilizations and cultures in human, in human experience. And they, in fact, for the most part, simply don't understand these people and what they actually are and what they actually have because they themselves are not sophisticated enough intellectually to understand the Indian, the, the, the various cultures that they are confronting. Yeah. And their decision is, well, we're just going to exploit the hell out of this place. And their cultures are all ridiculous. And they become the Mem Sahibs and the Sahibs and the Indians all become the Coolies. Come on. That's yeah. what happened. Yeah. 
But something else is happening here. There's something, whatever is happening here, it could be that it's standing back because of it doesn't want to colonize us culturally the way they did those others. So I just don't know. I can't pin it down, Greg. So give yeah, it your well, best I, shot. What, I, when I you, can't either. <laughs> what, when, what parts of it make you think it may be aliens from another world? Or any, or any, does any part of it? Because it's so alien. <laughs> That's beautiful, part of it. Beautiful. Beautiful. And the other part of it is that do our metaphors create something real or do our metaphors, you know, do they come from a place anywhere besides what our own cultural um, cueing is? And, you know, in some moments, I think that, yeah, it's so alien that it's it's got to be some other thing. And if it's not the what you said earlier about another human race or Mac Tony's crypto-terrestrials idea, um, you know, what, what other choice do we have of a source that is not human? Well, you know, our current ideas are that things that are not human can develop on other planets. Um, but we have this, you know, our own physics problem now of how do they get here uh, from those planets. Uh, I had um, uh, Kevin Knuth on my show once, and he had a, uh, I saw him at the SCU conference, and he discussed um, near light travel. And his idea was, and you know, I'm looking, you know, you're looking for a possibility how this could happen. So he's, you know, and it's not where I get in a ship I, and I travel, I, you know, put myself in suspended animation and travel for, you know, however many years or go through a wormhole, whatever that is. Um, his idea was, well, if you travel at near light speed because of the theory of uh, general relativity, it means that ship time is different than planet time or the time you left behind or whatever. It's going to, it's going to, it's going to compress. So basically, if you travel near light, um, you know, a year to you is a thousand years or something like that to your civilization. And of course, and so, it gets even more intense the faster you go, the the slower your time passes on for you. Yeah, ship time. And, you're, you know, you're just doing whatever you're going to do. But people back on your home planet within, you know, a month of you leaving are all dead. <laughs> right. <laughs> because... You're going that speed. So he said, well, at that point, you can't go back home. You will not have a home. Your home is your the people you're with on whatever you're traveling on. And at that point, you could spend an entire lifetime traveling the galaxy, no problem, because basically you're living for millions of years, um, even though you've only lived 60 or 70 or 80 years of ship time if you're a human and you have that lifespan. Um so he said it, it explains a lot about, you know, and, and Michael Masters has talked about this, too. I'm sure you know him. Yes, um, I think I've had him on the show. If not, yeah, I'm going to. You should. Um, he, you know, his, he examined a few uh, uh, recurring UFO uh, 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 encounter cases from the 1930s, 40s, things like that. And he said those people, and Kevin said this, too, whatever they are, if you want to be, you know, concrete what we know of science right now they could be you know they could come back 10 years later and it's about you know a week for them <laughs> depending on how fast they travel right. we're going to go over to alpha centauri or you know to the orion nebula or something for a little while and come back next week they come back next week here and it's you know 15 20 years later and they're the same people they're the same but you're seeing them 15 or 20 years later of course maybe they want to come back and see the person they saw before and see how they're doing realizing that they're going to come back when the person's 10 15 20 years older um and then maybe some stay around and and uh you know just stay at this on this planet or in this planet or under the water or whatever i mean if you want to be 100% physical aliens from other planets that's kind of the you know kind of the uh ideas right. that i couch them in you know, the fascinating thing is that they could never go home again. That right, they exactly. have no home, that they are they are high wanderers of a sort mm -hmm. if they're if they're real. And and then you you get into the issues of how 
what do they eat and you know uh, and how do they continue to function if they if they if they if, if their their own planet of origin is lost in time mm -hmm. which gets me to the cattle mutilations and your skepticism about them and uh i would like to address that issue because i think it's quite fascinating yeah I've you said seen... you had some disagreements i was going to ask you <laughs> yeah, well that was one yeah well i i i, I never have this show is not about it's not a it's not a confrontational show on purpose because its purpose is to get your ideas out, not to. Oh yeah, no, we I do know. that on my show too. We have a discussion, yeah. right? So uh, I've seen a mutilated cow uh, a steer actually on a branch in South Texas back in the fifties when I was a boy, and uh, I had uh, they they didn't there was no cattle mutilation in the news at all at that that time. We, we did not know what happened to it, but the the cowboys thought were very confused by it uh, uh, because they were trying to figure out what kind of a varmint had killed it because you know it was a valuable animal and yeah you know they, they didn't want that to keep happening on the ranch and the rancher was absolutely furious uh and i have no idea what the outcome was no i, I was only a, about nine and i just remember how weird it looked but you've got some ideas, so why don't you give us some uh, some ideas of what you what you've come up with? It's weird because I wrote about cattle mutilations, about crop circles, and there are mundane explanations for some, or maybe even most, of these things, but not all. And that's how I feel about the cattle mutilation um, issue. It started very early on, and I've talked to people that were involved very directly with it. I even talked to Linda about it a bit, who did some of the you know best uh, research on it and publicized it very early on in the in the late seventies, I believe it was. Um, but uh, people like Gabe Valdez, who I'm sure you know about or met or knew, he was there on almost ground zero in northeastern, northwestern New Mexico in the 1970s, the late 70s, when this started happening. And he got to the he finally got to the point where he said he thought it was ha having to do with um, some kind of pathogen that was accidentally introduced to the cattle cattle population, and somebody was trying to monitor it. Um, Chris O'Brien, who you probably know and may have had on your show. The, the he's probably delved into it deeper than most anyone besides David Perkins, who's his uh, mentor in this. And he said, no one explanation makes any sense. Some work for some, some work for others, and then some have no relationship to any explanation that he can find. So it is a multifaceted thing. And I think that if there are humans involved in it or some kind of covert group involved with it, um, they may be piggybacking on something that just originally happened that really had no explanation. I mean, what happened to Snippy the horse? There was there was no reason to to kill that animal, really, at least um, you know, ostensibly from any kind of perspective that we know of. But it happened, and there was never any explanation for it. And that was, I think, what in Colorado in 1967 or something like that. Yeah. So Snippy the horse is actually on one of our cards. Um, <laughs> Yeah, on the death card, strangely enough. You've got a wonderful little essay about Snippy the Horse in It Devised Language, by the way. Oh, that's right. You yeah. may not remember this, but I, I've just read the book. Yeah, it's about the, somebody named Dodie. Owned the, <laughs> owned the, Dodie. Yeah, exactly. Oh, oh, not the Dodie we know, but owned the, no. the skeleton for a while. Right. But anyway, um, you know, I'm skeptical about one explanation. I'm not skeptical about meaning like I think there's a definite explanation and it's predators or, you know, satanic rituals or a um, or some secret group in the government or somebody trying to cover up some pathogen. It There's evidence for all these things. And there's also evidence that makes no sense whatsoever, like organs removed with no visible means of having them taken out, not even an incision, just things right. like that. Well, there's a, also, if you look at the, the way the bodies are are dealt with uh, they uh a lot of the of the tissue that's taken is very rich in stem cells mm. 
and if you want to get really creepy, oh. uh, the the particular stem cells that are involved are very much like human stem cells. Mm -hmm. And if if somebody had an advanced capability, they might be able to create human bodies Whoops. from those cells. Yeah. And so that 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 gets you down into the paranoid, um, uh, schizophrenic uh, <laughs> conspiracy theory world. Another direction is this: there is something called Pran disease, mad cow disease. That was a big scare back in the what in the seventies, I think. No, I, and, I think the eighties, and, and Britain, was it the eighties? Like thousands of cattle because of it. Right. So. Th that kind of fits that there would be these tests going on and then the discovery somebody knew of this which means that they knew of its origin and and its danger mm -hmm. because if it had filled the entire uh cattle population that would have been the end of of meat and the end of cattle yeah. for us and maybe and the end, the end, of, end a of, of a lot of us as well <laughs> Um, a, a very, very bizarre plague. So that was out there. Mm -hmm. And yet at yeah. the same time, that remember that video? I don't know if you ever saw it of the cow coming, crashing down through the roof of a barn? No, I never put, saw that. Uh, put up by a farmer? Yeah, it sh shows a, it's a, uh, 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 there's a, uh, a, a camera in, in in a barn, you know, what just a, a surveillance a, camera, surveillance camera watching the barn, and suddenly, amid a great shower of shingles, this cow comes crashing down through the roof of the barn mm -hmm. into the barn, and it's obviously pretty rattled and looks like it's hurt. The farmer, according to the guy who made the video wouldn't uh would not uh talk about it at all and so you're just left with another mystery you know yeah. i i just and so we circle around these things but if we land that's the mistake definitely landing is the mistake and then you begin to confabulate and that's how folklore begins yeah yeah also, if you have, I, I have this, you know, I think I said this in the book somewhere too. If you settle on a, a, a explanation for any of these things, particularly the UFO issue, very soon you find out that you're defending yourself against people that find all kinds of holes in your theory. And they're yeah. legitimate holes. <laughs> so, you know, to, to be, to, I think to be agnostic about it is probably, you know, it's the only sane alternative I've found and still be involved in this um, is just to be agnostic about everything. And it's like I said, as Shannon said, take it seriously, but not literally. Yeah. Take it seriously, but not literally. And oh, you what? go ahead. Please. No, no, go ahead, please. One other thing about the cattle mutilation um, issue, another weird thing. And Chris O'Brien and Dave Perkins found this out was that all the cattle mutilation cases they they examined in the United States at least were all downwind or downstream from nuclear facilities or nuclear test areas in some way or other. Now I don't know if that's a correlation causation issue, but it's something that they found out. Um, and you know that just adds another strange level of uh, yes. of, uh, of uh, mystery to it. Well, you know I've read recently that the that the animals that have that are living near Chernobyl, in particular the dogs, are evolving in very strange ways. Mm -hmm. And I've always thought that radiation is a source of evolutionary change, not necessarily all good and not necessarily all bad either, though, because yeah. it, it the gamma rays disturb DNA. They break it up. Yeah. And um, so... Perhaps that's why they, 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 the prion disease occurred because these animals were exposed to strontium-90 and things and someone was out there trying to figure out 
to map which animals might have been involved and which animals might have had uh, had calves that were also disturbed, damaged, et cetera, and so forth on the one hand. And then on the other hand, you've got the cow coming through the, through the roof of the barn. So, you know, you don't, my, my, I learned a long time ago, thanks to this lady back in there, Annie, to never let myself get pinned down with any of this stuff. But let's talk about people who do pin down things. I've, I have many people on the show who are close encounter witnesses who have long-term, long-standing relationships with entities. They definitely uh, identify as aliens and they have names and et cetera and so forth. Mm -hmm. And these people are really very convincing. Uh, one of them, uh, uh, Dolly, I believe her name is, has even had got some UFO video that can't be explained. And she says they come to her and take her on ships all the time. What can that be about? I don't know how to explain that or what to do with that, except to think that we must deal with a witness's or an experiencer's um, testimony on its own merits and listen and not judge and not start making connections or ideas about what we think it is but let them tell us what they think it is because I did not go through that experience. And if I did, I might have similar ideas. Um, so I'm not going to reject them out of hand. The other thing that comes to mind when you bring that up is uh, my friend, Earl, Earl Gray Anderson, who you probably know. And if you don't, you should, he's a wonderful guy. He's a Southern, he's a state section director for MUFON. And I've had lots of problems with MUFON and how they run things and, you know, how they have a top-down structure and they have certain ways that they do things. However, Earl said something that really impressed me early on when I first met him. And he's been talking to UFO witnesses for 20-something years or more. Um, you know, in fact, I asked him, why do you stay in MUFON with all the problems with it? And he said, because I get cases. It's the only way that I get cases. And I said, you know, it's like I, I can respect that. But the one thing he said to me about most of, of you know, the, the basic metric he uses for whether he should um, pursue a case or not, or if it has a mundane explanation or not, he said, if there's, if there's not something that doesn't make sense in the account, then he automatically dis, uh, downgrades it to possibly something mundane. He says, because all the cases that he's looked at where there is some sort of ver validity to it or even a vertical reality to it, V-E-R-D-I-C-A-L, meaning there are other people around or some kind of evidence or something like that. Every case he's come to that seems to be legitimate, he said that there's, there's something or multiple things that are absolutely insanely, ridiculously don't fit. It has, he says, there has to be some ridiculousness or some absurdity to it or he 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 doesn't believe he's automatically not believing the story as much, and I I I truly believe that th that's what goes on. So if you're you know talking to an experiencer and their 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 story makes you know uh, makes a, 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 some kind of um, objective sense and holds together logically, I start to wonder about it because we tell stories so that they sound logical, right? Because that's how a story works. But if something not logical is in that story, um, I tend to think that there's more, you know, that, that, that there's um, that's how the phenomenon presents itself. It makes no sense whatsoever. Um, we make our own sense of it as we as we as we've been discussing. So, you know, and Carla Turner said this, too, when I interviewed her in the in the 90s and she became a friend. She was really smart, really nice person um, and just really sharp about the phenomenon. But she said and I keep bringing this quote up. She said, I think the answer, if there is any, is going to lie in the anomalous details that we find, not, not in the obvious things that, that, makes, that, that, are, that are found across, you know, everybody has this happen to them. Everybody has a medical examination, everything. No, I mean, if somebody says, well, right after my abduction, my dead grandmother called me twice and, and I talked to her on the phone. <laughs> Why would that be connected to a UFO experience? But it would be. And these kind of weird things, they happen to you too. Um, these things that make no sense seem to be a calling card. 
if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, well, I've got I've got one um, today actually that we'll talk about in in just a minute that just happened this morning, and uh, this show is going to air in a couple of weeks, so it's happened it happened on the morning of uh, uh, April. What is it? Third. Third, yeah, morning of April the third. And we'll talk about it in just a couple of minutes. We've reached the end of the free show. And free f listeners, thank you so much for your participation in Dreamland. And do visit Unknown Country uh, and uh, pick up Greg's book. Uh, it defies language. It's lots of fun. It defies de description and explanation, too. But it is a load of brilliant essays and thoughtful wonderings about the nature of the mystery. It doesn't close any doors, and that's the beauty of it. Also, think about my book, Them, uh, which is uh, out there now and making its beginning to make its way in the world. So we'll see you next week. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.